You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's Subscription Fly Box. Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly time materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on price, service, and passion. And now, you can check out that Togans buzz for yourself. Right now, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Alex? I'm doing great, Dave. Appreciate you having me here today. Yeah, thanks for uh, putting this together. And uh, we're going to dig into some of the conservation uh, topics you guys are working on out there in Ohio. I guess we'll talk about that. I'm not even sure if... You know, if it's always, uh, if it's all Ohio, if you guys have uh, broader plans in the future, but I want to talk about kind of the, what's keeping you busy and all that. But first let's take it back. Cause we have, this is obviously fly fishing. So let's hear about your first memory of fly fishing. How'd you get into that? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. Um, so I grew up kind of a, a rural country kid in Northeast Ohio, hunting and fishing was just, you know, what we did growing up, but fly fishing wasn't really something that we did. You know, we grew up kind of fishing farm ponds for bass and bluegill and crappie and all that fun stuff. And probably didn't start fly fishing till I was a late teenager, maybe 17, 18 years old. And I really got into it through my brother, who was a very avid and uh, good fly fisherman. And ultimately ended up taking some trips out west where I kind of got my first flies wet. And then, um, you know, I'm not the guy that has all the gear, but uh, borrows my brother's gear when when I go on trips out west. So I really appreciate it and um, really enjoyed it over the years. And I've done probably half a dozen fly fishing trips over the years, primarily in, in Wyoming. Where would you go in Wyoming? Um, primarily in the Cody region. Um, had a buddy that lived out there for years and so took several trips out there and uh, we did quite a bit of fishing over the years. Nice. And so your current position, I mean, I, I think there is always a lot of overlap with conservation issues and things like that, you know, because obviously people fishing want to see more fish and, and all that. But how did, um, you know, your current position there, how did you get into the conservation stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I didn't even know that this entity this organization existed when I was in college or when I grew up in the region that that we now operate as an organization so um, I think it was a lot of luck quite frankly but when I went to undergrad I went and got a biology degree from Kent State ended up getting a wetland ecology degree a master's in wetland ecology from SUNY Brockport and um, I just really enjoyed being outdoors my whole kind of upbringing and just thought that why not try to make a career out of being outside and doing the things that I love and um, landed at uh, the Nature Conservancy on some kind of temporary gigs doing invasive species and then was just fortunate enough to make some connections with some folks at Western Reserve Land Conservancy back when I was working for the Nature Conservancy and um, I also, I think some of my motivation to get into this work was growing up in an era where, you know, back in the day, um, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm elder, old here, but, you know, 
when I was 10, 11 years old, growing up deer hunting in Northeastern Ohio, you know, hunting properties and getting access to properties wasn't even a question. It was just kind of everybody understood that that was okay. And literally, I think like a five-year span, let's just say from 10, 11 to 15, 16, I was seeing houses being built and farms being subdivided. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I, I knew I didn't like it. And um, I think that just instilled in me some conservation ethic that, you know, we got to protect some of the natural resources of our region. And when I became a, um, aware of the Western Reserve Land Conservancy, I just thought, man, that sounds awesome. And I get to work kind of near my hometown. Couldn't be a better fit. You know, I have some relationships there that I think can leverage our work. And, um, you know, that was it. Wow. Uh, is, yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, you're out. Same thing. You know, you're out hunting. And you start to see some of your old hunting lands, you know, turning into houses and stuff exactly. like that and subdivisions. And you're out there, you know, now I know protecting these areas. I mean, what is it like? I, I guess let's take it back, um, you know, the Nature Conservancy, because that's one of the, I think, one of the largest conservation groups maybe in the world. I don't, you know, it's, it's yep. big. But now you go to the, you know, the, your current position. What is the difference between like working the Nature Conservancy versus, and I'm not sure if your roles were similar, but talk about the difference between the organizations. Yeah, um, the Nature Conservancy is a global organization. So one of the largest nonprofits in the world and, and a great organization. Um, when I was working there, I was doing kind of niche invasive species work in wetlands. So we were, you know, treating Phragmites and invasive cattail and reed canary grass in these invasive species that kind of outcompete and take over wetland habitats and reduce diversity and reduce overall ecosystem health. And so that was a pretty niche thing, but in general, similar organizations, and then we're both land trusts, we're, I would say, a more um, local or regional land trust. We're obviously not national. We're focused in 29 counties in Northeast Ohio. And I think the Nature Conservancy's focus, I certainly don't want to speak too much for them. Folks can do research on their website, and each state does operate a little bit differently. Mm. But here in Ohio, they're really focused on really, really, really high quality and rare natural resources. So, you know, bogs and fen habitats and, and rare prairie habitats, which is great. Um, we think that's wonderful. Everybody in the conservation community appreciates that. Here at the Land Conservancy, our mission is a little bit more general in that you know, we want to protect bogs and fens, but we're also going to protect 50 acres of farmland with a private conservation easement. So just the way that we operate is, I think, a little bit more general, and we take a little bit more of a community approach, meaning the conservation tool that works in one county or one community might not be the right tool to work in another county or another community. Right. And we're just trying to protect as many of our natural resources that we have here in Northeast Ohio with whatever tool that might be. And we have a multitude of tools that we try to use. Right. That makes sense. So you're, yeah, a little bit broader. And I've seen some of the stuff you're doing where you're not only in the, you know, in the rural areas, but even in the urban, you know, and I think, you know, when, when talking about our trip, you know, we're doing this really cool trip. We're heading back for the, you know, the second time, at least that I've been there. And um, yeah, I think I, it blew me away. I think the natural resource, I think people think of Cleveland, Ohio and stuff like that. And maybe around the country, if you haven't been there, you think maybe it's not as, as nice naturally as it is. And part of that is like, was it the Cuyahoga? What was the river that caught on fire? Yeah. Yeah. Gave us a bad rap. Yeah. So you got a bad rap around the country because I mean, I didn't even know about that or I, maybe I did, but I know people have mentioned that, you know, that that's something that sticks. Just give us a little background on that. What's the deal. And then the great thing is it's, it's a good story because it's cleaner now than it was. Yeah, for sure. So I can't give you the exact facts. It's easy to find, but I want to say 60s, 70s, industrial age, you know, a lot of manufacturing going on in the city of Cleveland and unfortunately a lot of pollution just going directly into the river to the extent where, you know, you have so many um, flammable compounds on the water that it literally caught on fire. And, you know, obviously it was a big news story. Yeah. <laughs> Still talked about too much today, but you know, that was kind of the low point for our region, right? And right. We've come an extremely long way. I mean, that incident, I believe, helped put in place a lot of laws that helped govern some of the, the pollution that was happening. And so it is amazing. And I'm sure people don't think of Cleveland as, you know, a kind of a vibrant living area with exceptional natural resources. But the reality is we have those and it's, you know, we've got some pretty special things. We've got abundance of wetlands in a state that has over 95% of the wetlands have been eliminated. And Northeast Ohio has the majority of the remaining ones. We have Lake Erie, obviously the shoreline. We have these unbelievably great, um, great lakes, rivers that produce steelhead and abundance of other types of game fish and non-game fish that are very diverse. So 
it's a great place to live. And uh, we're just trying to make it better every day by protecting the remaining, you know, resources that, you know, we think the people in this region um, appreciate. Nice. And that is one of the big, I mean, yeah. So you're back in the sixties. That was a long time ago. So now what are the biggest, you know, if you think about all the species and I know you work with a lot of different diversity of species, but what are the, the biggest challenges that we're facing from a, you know, a natural resource conservation perspective that you're thinking about? Like what are, what are you doing out there that's helping to move the needle out there? Yeah. I mean, in general, I think just the culture of, um, humans to like want to be, away from poor environments and in healthy environments. And, and I know that's very general, but you know, the, the analogy here is like the city of Cleveland, go back to when the Cuyahoga caught on fire. And at that point in time, it was actually probably economically thriving, but soon after that, it was not. And so it became a distressed community for decades. And, you know, so part of our work is to try to revitalize. We actually do a lot of urban work around the city of Cleveland where we're trying to revitalize Cleveland. And the reason being, and, and I think the way that I'm going to try to tie this all together is that, you know, we spend so much time as an organization in the more rural or suburban counties related to Cleveland, like Geauga and Portage and Lorraine and Medina, you know, trying to combat urban sprawl, right, which is the effect of folks moving away from metropolitan areas to more rural areas. And it just it, it compounds on itself over time. And it just doesn't get better necessarily unless you are protecting those resources that are out there. And uh, so we've started to invest a lot of resources in our urban work and making Cleveland more livable, right? Because it has been distressed. So, you know, we're investing in and developing land banks that fast track the foreclosure process. We're investing in planting trees throughout the neighborhood, which help for a variety of ecological, but also kind of mental and uh, physiological benefits to humans, just having trees around for better air quality, you know, filtering water, just aesthetically, I think it puts you in a better frame of mind when you're around trees. And um, doing property surveys for communities to help them kind of identify where to invest resources when they've got 5,000 vacant and abandoned homes in their community and what they should do with those. And the whole reason for all that investment is, you know, Cleveland is the area that has the infrastructure, right? Yep. Uh, has the jobs, it has the places to live, now, albeit they, they might need some help, uh, has the transportation. And so that's really where folks should live. And interestingly, you know, pre-COVID, I think in growing up around this area, I was seeing a lot of folks, you know, younger than me, you know, they didn't want anything to do with the rural area. They didn't want to grow up on the farm. They didn't want to, you know, be out outdoors as much necessarily. They wanted to be kind of where all the nightlife is, where the jobs are, where the salaries are higher. So that kind of transition was really happening, we thought. And then, you know, COVID happened in the exact opposite. You know, everyone wanted to be as far away from people as possible. So that was a little bit of a, uh, a reversal. But I think in time, it will start to do that again, where people want to be where the activities are. And by investing in these urban areas and making these more livable, uh, more enjoyable, we're essentially redirecting the development pressure from the rural and suburban areas where these remaining resources still are. And that buys us time to try to figure out how to conserve those, whether that means we're going to try to buy the property. Uh, we do a lot of acquisition work where we buy the property. We don't typically own the land, but we work with a community partner, could be a metro park, could be a, another nonprofit, could be a local village or municipality. And so we do like a one-stop shop in terms of buying the property, getting it funded, getting it paid for. We conserve it with a conservation easement, and then we transfer it over to that entity and they can use it for passive recreation. So that's one kind of tool that we use to conserve property. We also do a lot of private conservation, meaning we never own the land and a, a public or other nonprofit never owns the land. You know, John Smith owns a hundred acre farm or a hundred acre wetland or forest or whatever in some suburban county. He comes to us and I'm a fifth generation owner of this land. I want to preserve my property because who knows what happens when I die. And the last thing I have to do is kind of jeopardize what my family spent, you know, so much blood, sweat and tears to have and to pass on. And so we just put a conservation easement on that property. We're the third party holder, meaning it's our obligation to make sure that property is protected in perpetuity. That landowner can still sell the property. They can still hunt the property. A lot of times they can still do sustainable forestry. They can do restoration projects. They can have trails. They can still farm the property. So we try to be really flexible in terms of our conservation easement, private conservation easement work, because if we're not flexible, we just know we're not going to have as big of an impact. So we've done a ton of work through private conservation to date, and that's probably maybe maybe half the acres that we've preserved. We've preserved over 70,000 acres as an organization in about 25 years. Oh, wow. Um, 
which is a pretty significant chunk of land and a very fragmented um, landscape here in Northeast Ohio. And these are all over. And is it focused mostly on Northeast Ohio or are you doing this 70,000 all over Ohio? No. So it's all Northeast Ohio. So we cover 29 counties. So if you can think of Northeast Ohio, it's, it's generally the greater Cleveland region, but it's also the Northeast quadrat of Ohio. So Northeast of Columbus, essentially, we do touch the Ohio River down in Jefferson, Columbia, and Carroll counties. And then uh, we do kind of cover over to the Lake Erie Islands region and then kind of make a 90 degree point in between those two going west. Yeah, that's it. All right. And so on the conservation easement, let's uh, hear a little more about that. How does that, so you've got all these private, so like you said, you know, John Smith has this land, he's got a hundred acres, it's a farm. Essentially what he wants is he doesn't want this to be, you know, he dies and his kids or whoever turn into a subdivision and now the farm's gone and you've got, that's kind of what a lot of these people don't want. Is that what, and then they want just to protect what they have, the natural resources. Yep, exactly. So um, yeah, I mean, we get calls weekly about conservation easements throughout the 29 counties. And the primary motivation is always that they just want to see the property protected. There is a, a secondary motivation, and that is that landowners who donate conservation easements, which means they're voluntarily placing this conservation easement on the property, which is restricting the property in some way, shape or form, uh, they become eligible for a federal income tax deduction based on the value that that conservation easement has essentially devalued their property. Mm. So. Uh, depending on how big the property, this can be a pretty significant federal income tax deduction. And one of the, the benefits of this deduction is that uh, you have up to 16 years to use up the d- deduction. So for instance, we work with a lot of agricultural producers who donate conservation easements on their agricultural land, allows them to continue to do all their agricultural work. But as you know, farming is a is an economy that often ebbs and flows. And so having an extended period of time as a farmer to be able to take a federal income tax deduction over some course of that 16 years is very appealing. They don't have to take it all in one year or two years or three years. It's a very extended period of time. So there is some financial motivation for donated conservation easements, but at the end of the day, there always has to be the primary motivation, which is to see the land protected because the landowner puts a conservation easement on that just to get the tax deduction. There's going to be issues and we don't want to get in a situation where we know we're going to get into issues, uh, Right. So we're very clear to landowners. And, you know, this is a long process. This doesn't happen in a couple of weeks. It takes a couple of months at the very quickest. But it's a very efficient way to protect natural resources with, you know, nearly zero investment aside from our staff time and effort. But uh, it's a great way. We've protected, you know, tens of thousands of acres in that manner. And we're going to continue to do that. And you can get a lot of work done relatively quickly that way. And what is something that, you know, and staying on this, you know, John Smith thing, what is something that could potentially go wrong? Or what are you looking at? What's the red flag where you're like, well, maybe this isn't the best opportunity where maybe the person, it sounds like you kind of need, you know, a local champion that really wants is in favor of conservation. What would be the opposite that something you'd see is like, oh, wow, we don't want to get into this one. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not for everybody, right, Dave? Like we're not banging on anybody's doors telling them we should do this. All of our donated conservation easement work is by folks calling into our office and saying, I would like to learn more about this. And that's how it starts. But, you know, what are some of the the drawbacks to it? It's like, so if if John Smith got a hundred acre farm and he puts a conservation easement over that whole hundred acre farm, which by the way, he doesn't have to, but let's just say he chooses to, he can't subdivide five acres off in five years when somebody comes and says, I'll give you a hundred grand for this five acre lot. Right. Or he can't put a building where he didn't reserve a building, you know, five years from the line of the landowner. So these conservation easements are, you know, they're a big deal. They're perpetual documents. And we ask landowners, and we go through this process, like you need to take your time and you need to think about every possible scenario that you think could happen to either you or a future owner. But at the end of the day, you know, it's up to that landowner at that point in time to to conserve the property the way they think is possible. Yeah, that's cool. And on that property, could in the future or could John, you know, if, if he's out there, you know, he's farming, could he change it into also even take a step further and say, hey, I actually want 20 acres to be changed into restored into wetland habitats. Is that something like the opposite of building something like going even further? Could they do that? Yeah, so that's a great question, Dave. Um, so our agricultural easement language is, is unique in that. So if uh, John Smith, let's just say John's 100-acre property is 100 acres of um, farmland. He's not required to farm that property. He could stop farming that property any day and let that property revert to an old-growth forest. But he, at the end of the day, he still has the right to farm that 
if it was an old growth forest. Now, in addition to that, though, we have started incorporating, and we didn't do this, you know, 20 years ago when we first started doing these, but nearly every one of our conservation easements today includes restoration language that allows for, um, like what you said, wetland restoration or habitat restoration, whether it's, you know, somebody wants to do a early successional forest habitat cut for grouse and woodcock, or they want to create a wetland uh, or restore a wetland in an area that used to be a wetland for waterfowl habitat or waterfowl hunting. Um, so we incorporate now, that now because, you know, that's important. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee Team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. Roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. For me, it's all about that freshness and taste when I crack open a bag of anglers in the morning. I feel good because I know not only does it taste great, but I am supporting great movements along the way. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go, tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Anglers is serving your needs. It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to grab a bag of greatness today. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to make a change today. Yeah, this is great. So we've got, yeah, the land acquisition is a huge part of this. And you mentioned kind of private and and things where you're actually, it sounds like purchasing. What, what are some other, maybe we could talk projects. What would be names? We're going to be driving in, you know, coming into Cleveland, driving up north an hour or so into that area. And we're going to have a, actually a, a group that's going to be up in New York and Pennsylvania fishing the Lake Erie trips as well. But what are some names of projects that, you know, as we're driving up there, we might cross or hear about on our way from Cleveland up towards uh, Pennsylvania? Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't know if I can give you great examples of projects. Or just in general, just give us a, it doesn't have to be that specific uh, region or that area, but just anything you want to highlight is like, this is a good success story that we can understand what you do. Yeah, for sure. So I will give you an example. We're, we're working, or, or we just finished working with um, a great partner, Lake Metro Parks here in Northeast Ohio, Lake County. So it's a county metro park. We just acquired 300 and. 50 acres and ended up transferring about 340 acres to Lake Metro Parks. So it was a great scenario where the nonprofit, we Western Reserve Land Conservancy partner with um, Lake County Metro Parks to kind of secure some property was at risk of being heavily forested or heavily timbered and uh, heavily subdivided. It's got over a mile of frontage on the Grand River in a stretch that is extremely fishable for steelhead. So below the, the Harpers Field Dam. It's been a key conservation piece that both we and the, the Lake Metro Parks had had an eye on for decades. And um, really interesting scenario. And, and one of the ways that I think Western Reserve Land Conservancy is so unique, the property was foreclosed upon and went uh, through federal bankruptcy. And it was during COVID and there was an online auction to sell the property. And, you know, a lot of times county, uh, state, uh, political entities just aren't able to go to auctions and have, you know, quick access to capital to secure properties like this. So this is one of our kind of greatest strengths as a partner, we believe. So we went to this online auction and bought the property for way more than we anticipated buying it for a couple million dollars, hmm. which is, um, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. And didn't have any real kind of backstop. So as an organization, we kind of call this a, an at-risk deal because we had no idea really what was going to happen and um, worked super hard with our partners at Lake Metro Parks, secured the funding through both the Metro Parks and also public grants to essentially fundraise to pay off the debt that we had secured the property. And so last uh, last winter, we formally closed on the property, meaning we transferred it to Lake Metro Parks. It's not yet openly publicly accessible because they have to do some of their park uh, development, park planning and park improvements. But it's an unbelievable site. Like I said, it's about 340 acres, a mile of Grand River frontage, kind of in the heart of um, Steelhead Alley and um, beautiful, large, extremely large red oaks, hemlock lined ravines, some really cool waterfalls. I mean, it's going to be an exceptional park and property. And you know, that's an example of kind of what we do. We try to be the best partners we can in terms of conserving land and then finding the best owner to really operate that in whatever kind of park that might be, whether it's just a passive nature park, whether it's public hunting, public fishing, mountain bike trails, whatever it might be. Um, 
that's a great example of projects we've done. We've done a lot in Ashtabula and Lake counties along Erie. Uh, we've done a ton of work along the Grand River, um, which is obviously a prime destination for both steelhead and just um, boaters and anglers in general. So, yeah, there's. But uh, we've did some pro we've done some properties with Ashtabula County Metro Parks, the Red Brook property up near Ashtabula City that's got a direct tributary to Lake Erie. Uh, it was an old golf course. A very similar type of scenario that I just explained to you where we kind of went at risk to um, acquire the property and then transferred over to Ashtabula County Metro Parks. And now it's, you know, golf courses that the golfers out there aren't going to like this, but they do make great parks uh, if, they're, if they're not financially stable and right. sustainable because they got the paths and they're easily restorable. A lot of times they have water features. And uh, this this property happens to have a direct Lake Erie Trib is literally a stone's throw from Lake Erie and uh, it's now publicly accessible for fishing and, and, um, and other recreation. So examples like that is kind of what we do. Yeah. Those are great examples. And the grand, I remember the grand, we fished it one day. It's kind of one of the bigger rivers out there and yep. yeah, it was a really good experience. I mean, really everywhere we went, I mean, was a good experience. I mean, that was, it wasn't like there were, you know, buildings all over the place. I mean, there were some areas for sure. We were fishing, I can't remember the name of the river, but there were areas where we were near the city and fishing, but sure. it, it's really cool. So, so that's what you guys have going. I mean, this is the, the acquisition obviously is a big part of it. Talk about a little bit on, you know, and this can be in general, but what are the species that you guys are focusing on? Cause there, you got all, you know, you mentioned the steelhead and stuff like that, but there's all sorts of different species, bugs, animals, whatever. What are your, do you have like focus species that you're thinking about or, or does it just depend on the properties? Yeah, there's a little bit of that um, in, in the, there's a couple species like we have here in Northeast Ohio, the Eastern Massasauga rattlesnake, which is a federally threatened. Oh, wow. You have a rattlesnake in Ohio. We do. A lot of people don't know that. No. And what's it called again? Uh, Eastern Massasauga rattlesnake. Massasauga. So, um, very threatened. You know, I grew up in the area that they lived in, very small geographical areas where they can um, survive and never saw one ever hmm. until I started working with this organization. And we have some really great partnerships in place with Ohio State University and others to help us with kind of the, the Massasauga conservation. But that's one species. There's also a species that is state listed, which is uh, the hellbender species down uh, in the Little Beaver Creek area. So kind of in our southeast region. And so those species are great because they really help attract funding. So we're essentially able to leverage, unfortunately, their kind of vulnerability to, to favor not only them, but all kinds of other species, right? Because, for instance, the Massasauga uh, rattlesnake likes early successional and wet kind of field habitats. By the way, you know, that's kind of a keystone habitat in Northeast Ohio that have that much of, right? Because it's either kind of agriculture or it's a more mature forest. Most of the, you don't have a lot of that in between. So what we do is uh, we're able to get funding from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to kind of maintain uh, these areas and keep them mowed every, you know, every couple of years. So we're promoting that early successional habitat, which, you know, by the way, is great for, you know, it's great for deer. It's great for nesting turkey. Great for woodcock. It's great for all kinds of other species, and it's really probably better and more diverse than a mature forest at the end of the day. Anyway, so species like that help us attract funding that benefit a lot of other species. But literally, you know, anything that has any type of listing, um, whether it's state or federal, meaning it's threatened or endangered or species of concern, yeah. those help because you know those species are in that status for a reason. And any kind of habitat that you can show has that species on it makes your grants more competitive and allows you to try to conserve more land. So we're looking for everything. So a part of the process when we go to buy land to conserve it is that we'll have natural resource professionals and experts doing surveys on our properties for literally everything, you know, plants, animals, birds, amphibians, uh, bats, uh, whatever it might be to try to get whatever kind of competitive edge we can to, um, to try to, to get the property funded through uh, state or federal grant sources. Gotcha. And so that's part of the, that's part of the process, like with the funding. So if you, like you mentioned the $2 million for the Lake County acquisition, that was something where you, I mean, where were those funders? Where did the bulk of that funding, were these just, um, you know, opportunities? Talk about how that 2 million, how you came to put that all together. Yeah, it was a couple million, but yes. So we're very fortunate here in Ohio that the state has set up some really great conservation funding opportunities. So the Clean Ohio Conservation Fund is a state funding opportunity that is, you know, I think it's about 50 million a year divvied up throughout the state of Ohio. 
that, you know, applicants like us, so nonprofits, but government entities are eligible to apply as well, can put applications together to apply for, to buy properties for conservation purposes. And so this has been around since about 2002. Hmm. Um, it's been the best funding program from a state standpoint that has just been longstanding and supportive of kind of the work that all the partners are doing here to try to conserve the land. And um, so that is an opportunity that, you know, there's a certain amount of money per region and all the applicants kind of bring their projects together and you get scored. It's competitive. You're not guaranteed to get any funding. And, um, you know, however the scores shake out is how you score and maybe you get some money, maybe you don't. But the Clean Ohio Conservation Fund has been a great asset to the state of Ohio for conservation. But we also have some Ohio EPA programs that focus more on kind of pristine uh, wetlands and water resources. But same type of idea. They have a grant program that's annual and they put out about 15 million annually through the state of Ohio. Again, everybody across the state's competing against each other to put these grants together to try to buy land or conserve land or restore land through the grant process. And so those are kind of the two primary ones that have been in Ohio for a while. But the conservation movement and the conservation funding in general is at an all-time high based on my experience in Ohio. You know, we had kind of a, a large influx of money from the federal standpoint a couple of years ago, and that has trickled into the conservation funding, like the North American Wetlands Conservation Act uh, is a funding source that we utilize in partnership with our great partners over at Ducks Unlimited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that funding pot, I don't remember exactly how far it went up, but it has gone up significantly. So there's just more opportunities to conserve land. Here in Ohio, Governor DeWine put into place the H2O How program, which is yet another conservation program, which is focused on really water quality associated with Lake Erie, but also um, the southern part of our state. And so th there's just the opportunities right now are amazing um, to be in the conservation space and to have these opportunities. It just allows us to have a bigger impact. And uh, we're super grateful for for all the all the folks that have helped put these things into place. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of funding out there. I mean, part of the challenge might be maybe getting enough uh, capacity to do the projects, or right? It sounds like there's a lot of money, but what's the staff look like? So you've got you, who else? Do you guys have a pretty big staff or you're pretty small? What's that look like? Yeah, so we're, we're, we've been very fortunate to become one of the largest land trusts in the United States. So we have, um, I think we, we've gone over 50 employees. Oh, wow, yeah. Here in about the last year. And um, we are very grateful to have resources in terms of um, staff to be able to do the work. I mean, we have a very professional and um, very productive team that, you know, the people that come to work here don't come here for a job. They come here for a lifestyle. And that, that lifestyle is to, to help make our region a better place through conservation and restoration. And, um, you know, people come here because they want to help preserve the land. And it, it's just awesome to see our culture of folks that, you know, just want to get stuff done and, and get these properties conserved in whatever manner that might be. And, you know, it's pretty rewarding to have a job where you can drive down the road, see one of our roads that we put road signs up on a lot of our protected properties, see that sign, see that property, that property still there. It's not subdivided. It's not a dollar. It's not a Burger King. Right. And it's going to be there forever. And that's pretty amazing. And uh, I think that's why we come here. Yeah, that is amazing. That's really cool. What's the um, I, I guess I had a couple other notes here just on um, one big one, I guess, people listening right now that are either from the area or around that region. What would you tell them? What's something they can do to, you know, have an impact, you know, either you know, on what you guys are doing or just in general? What, what's the recommendation? I know you guys do some outreach stuff. Yeah, I would just say get involved with your local conservation group. We would love for you to get involved with us, but it doesn't have to be us. You know, there's other groups out here, local metro parks, you know, Cleveland Museum of Natural History, other folks that are doing other similar types of conservation work. Get involved, see what we're doing, see what opportunities that we might have that might interest you. You know, become a donor, become a member, get our uh, publications, you know, see what we're doing. And, um, you know, just get involved, become aware of, of conservation and, and I think some of the benefits of it. Do you guys have uh, like volunteer opportunities through your, you know, the work you do, or it sounds like it's more land acquisition, but can people actually get on the ground and do stuff? Yeah, we do. We do. And we're going to continue to kind of build that program over time. But, you know, we have cleanup days. Uh, we actually have Grand River cleanups. Mm, yeah. When's that? When's that occur? Uh, it's in the spring. So it already occurred this year. Yeah. What's it just right? Because this will be out there for many years, this episode. So I just want people in the future so they can get on. That's like kind of a early spring or late spring, typically. I think it's late spring, typically. But, you know, just get in touch with us and um, 
point to our staff that put that on and and I could look it up very quickly and figure out the exact date. But, you know, for those steelhead fisher folks that are out there, you know, we're, we're picking up tires, mattresses, chairs, you know, all the junk. You know, we got dedicated staff going down the river with canoes with, you know, 350 pounds of garbage. So things like that are great opportunities for folks to get involved that are, you know, really making a difference to the resource. And uh, we do tree planting events. We do invasive species events. So we do a lot of stuff like that to, to get folks involved. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that that's what it sounds like. Those opportunities, even though you think, you know, removing tires from the stream, you know, the big picture, how much impact does that have? But really it's, I mean, the impact is like people are getting involved and they're seeing, right. They're seeing it happen. They're like, Oh, I'm, I'm removing this from the Creek. And then, and I'm actually out there fishing and now it's like, okay, I remember I removed that tire, that bed from is that's kind of what it is. Right. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So, and I mean, where do you go where you are now? We're, you know, summer 23, but as you look ahead, I'm sure you guys have your whole kind of planning process ahead, but do you have any big new things come in or do you just stay on track of what you have going? Do you have a certain amount of acreage you're trying, like goals you're trying to hit or how does that look looking ahead? You know, we, we don't really have like a, an acreage metric related to like hit this number every year. Like we're just literally trying to do as much as possible. Some years are big acres years. We might do 5,000 acres in a year. Some years you might do 2,500 acres in a year. And it, that just ebbs and flows because so much of our work is opportunity driven meaning you know like for the private and donated conservation easement work we're not soliciting anybody for those like those are just call-ins people become aware of us word of mouth they see our sign they, they check out our website they talk to somebody they call us that's how it happens we're a little bit more proactive with the acquisition work because properties become for sale and we're able to pursue those at that point in time but you can't predict when properties are going to come for sale so we're very opportunity based in terms of that but we got some super exciting properties on the horizon a 600 acre property down in Coshocton county that if not for us stepping in and partnering with one of our great partners down in our southern region muskingum watershed conservancy district the property would be would not be public anymore and so we're kind of maintaining public access on a very large part of kind of old forested land in Coshocton county which is a huge deer hunting county in Ohio. And so we're trying to promote not only natural resource protection, but, you know, tourism through hunting activities and things like that. So when we close that project, we'll have protected almost 4,000 acres down in that region. And we just started working down there a couple years ago. So that's pretty exciting. Um, We got a really big project that we're working on in Portage County, uh, just a stone's throw from the Cuyahoga River with our partners at Portage Park District. It's a really unique uh, site. It's an old quarry. And there's a 75 acre lake and a 25 acre lake and a couple smaller lakes on a, you know, almost 600 acre property. And we just don't have 75 acre lakes in Ohio very often. If they are, it's usually a park or a publicly accessible um, water body. So pretty cool opportunity. It was an old sand and gravel mine, um, but it's been reclaimed. It looks great. And uh, it's going to be a big deal. We think it's going to be an amazing park. we got a lot of work to do, but um, we, we hope to get there in the next couple of years. Right. So that's a big part. Of, I mean, not only you talked about the private stuff, but the public stuff is a part of the benefit is that people can actually use these places you're preserving. You're preserving, but you can actually steal their public land so they can get out there to hunt and fish. That's a big priority for you guys? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were really kind of founded more on like the private conservation side. But, you know, as you kind of just alluded to, there's so much more benefit to the community when you're able to create public parks, right? Now, the private conservation is crucial and it is the most efficient economical by far because rarely is there um, money actually, you know, changing hands. But that private landowner gets the benefit from it. Maybe his family and some other people do and maybe the people driving down the road get the benefit from it. And there's these auxiliary benefits like water quality and other things that people don't really, they're just not going to be aware of. But then you you protect, you know, a 500 acre park and, you know, hundreds to thousands of people could go there a day. Now you're really having an impact on your community. And, you know, I think just creating a more vibrant and healthy community overall. So there is a bigger bang for the buck with these acquisition projects that become public parks because people just get to use them so much more. One other thing I'd like to just talk about related to kind of the hunting and fishing community is that we've done a lot of work over the years to try to make property more accessible for, you know, folks that hunt and fish. And just recently we partnered with the Ohio division of wildlife who put into place what's called the Ohio landowner hunter access program. And so 
Division of Wildlife is able to kind of subsidize public access on properties that are privately owned. We as a nonprofit qualify as a privately owned entity. And so we enrolled nearly 2,500 acres in Northeast Ohio in that program two years ago when it first started and a great success from our standpoint. It helped us with some of our stewardship and management and monitoring in terms of the funding, but it just opened the public or opened the property to public hunting and the Division of Wildlife manages the program through a digital platform, which works really well. So we are huge advocates of just getting some of this property. And that property that we owned, uh, that's all property that we own. And we had hunting programs on it, but it was difficult for us to administer. We weren't experts at the whole program thing. And so having the Division of Wildlife come in and help us with that uh, has been a huge win for not only us, but for the communities because, you know, people can come hunt these properties. And um, we, we believe we have some pretty high quality properties in Northeast Ohio. And so we're trying to do as many public access projects related to hunting and fishing as, as possible. We've also just done projects with the Division of Wildlife where we acquired or helped acquire property, transferred to them. That becomes a wildlife area. So that's a big part of our work as well that maybe we don't tout as well. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro-Nymph reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the Stinger reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light. And uh, and when you're Euro-nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and, and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euro-nymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euro-nymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick Fly Fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com maverick to check out the good stuff they have going. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K wetflyswing.com slash maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euro-nymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. Sounds like you're kind of, you've got both ends, right? You have a connection to the hunting and fishing, but also the conservation. Do you feel like there's people out there that are, you know, like there's more people going away from the hunting and fishing and more towards the, the, you know what I mean? Like there's not as many hunters and fishers out there as there were. And there's more of the conservation just as like the new millennials or whoever are coming up through. What, what's your take there? Do you see that at all? Or do you think, or in Ohio, is it still a vibrant community, the hunting and fishing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think generally, probably at a national level, what you said first in terms of, you know, there's obviously less people that are hunting and fishing that, that is unfortunate, but uh, in Ohio, the hunting culture is very strong and the fishing, the angling culture is, is very strong. You know, we got Lake Erie right now. It's producing just an unbelievable stock of walleye. And um, like that economy in its in, in and of itself is amazing. Um, and we just had a great stretch of, uh, of walleye hatches over the last, man, it's probably five, maybe even close to 10 years. Mm. And I just talked to a guy yesterday who, who said they they caught, they had to throw 20 back, which is like, they're still coming. Like wow. there's still the young people coming, which is a great thing because people are just dumping money into our economy, which a lot of that's going back to conservation, which is a great thing. So I think the hunting and angling culture is strong. You know, I still think it's upon us to continue to be advocates for that and access for hunting and fishing as an organization. You know, there's just not as many opportunities things are getting leased up. It's just more difficult to get on the land. And I think as conservationists, we have to figure out how to maintain this connection to the land, whether it's just you're going for a run on a local metro park, or you're going to go, you know, throw a line in a pond or a river, or, or you know, you're going to go hunt deer in your trees. Like we have to figure out how to maintain these opportunities for people to, to get outside. Right. I love that. And the, on the walleye and and we were talking, we talked steelhead a little bit. I, I was just thinking Chagrin River Outfitters. We had Dan Probanik yep. on. Yeah. And he was talking about, I asked about steelhead because obviously we're coming up there, you know, we're, 
bring in, we're going to add some dollars into the local economy as well. But I mean, he was saying like steelhead is huge, you know, without steelhead, he probably wouldn't have a fly shop there. What's your take on that? Cause you've got the salmon and steelhead, but then you've got other, I mean, right. Other native fish in the area, right. Smallmouth bass, stuff like that. What's your take on that? Is that just a, a great thing? The steelhead, do you see that the, the impact and the benefits to the economy, all that stuff? hundred percent. Um, I don't think that's really debatable at all. And I would agree that outfitters would not be, uh, would not be open if not for steelhead, you know, people just aren't fly fishing for many other species here in Ohio. Oh, they're not right. So they're not, no. that's it. I mean, there's not people out there. I can't even think of the other species. I know Jeff Liske, who's our guy, he's out there fishing for drum and, and other stuff out in the lake, but most people aren't doing that, that with the fly. Correct. Yeah. You know, the next species that's fly fish the most, maybe just from what I'm aware of is like musky and that's a small amount of people. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, the steelhead industry, let's call it is huge. And I, I mean, our office here, uh, for the Western Reserve Land Conservancy is right. You know, I could walk to the Chagrin River in five minutes from here. And when you drive up and down Chagrin River Road, which borders the river, I mean, there's people in cars, not to the point where it's crowded, but I mean, it's active, right? People right. fishing. I think that's wonderful. I mean, people are out and, you know, the Grand, Kanyak Creek, Rocky River, Vermilion, and they're all kind of like the same, like those people know, you know, and, you know, there's, depending on the river, like the Chagrin River has an incredible amount of public access. The Grand has really solid amount of public access. Some of the other rivers don't have as much, but, you know, that's where we think we can really make a change is creating access. We bought a property and transferred it to the city of Eastlake up on the Chagrin in Eastlake, uh, two years ago. And, you know, if you looked at it, you'd say, well, this doesn't look like steelhead water, but you know, there will be 20 to 30 fishermen on that bank during steelhead times every day, you know, trying to catch steelhead. And it's like, if that didn't happen, those people weren't there. So, you know, examples like that is, is what we're trying to, to, um, reproduce. And steelhead is a huge industry here in Northeast Ohio, for sure. Yep. That's it. And then other parts, what, what is other, you know, when you look around Ohio, I know you're focused in Northeast, but as you look around, what are the other big regions in is natural resource preservation important out there too? Or it seems like, is it because of the lake that it's such a priority? That's where you guys are. Um, you know, we're here, we're where we're at mostly just because of our founding and there just happens to be a lot of resources. The reason is that it was generally rural and a lot of the areas in the Northeast, like even Northeast of Cleveland or East of Cleveland were just super wet. So you know, they were hard to farm, hard to build on, and that's why they're there. And we're just lucky to be able to have the opportunity to preserve them now. But um, there's certainly conservation going on all across Ohio. You know, it's different, though. Every You know, you get into a kind of different geography, and it just kind of changes a little bit. Like down in Coshocton County, where we're working, you know, that's generally big forest land. It's not as much agriculture. It's a lot of reclaimed coal land. But it's still a great resource, right? Because there's still good habitat that's coming back and has regrown since, you know, 50 years ago when it was surface mined. And so Southern Ohio is very rural, obviously a lot more elevation change in the Appalachia region, uh, where up here east it's more flat. And then Western Ohio is really dominated by the agricultural industry. So the resources are a lot fewer and farther between in terms of kind of wetlands and forests and things like that. But, you know, those are prime agricultural soils that, you know, we as Americans depend on to, to feed our families. So, right. you know, it's all important in its own way. Yeah. You can't, I mean, we, we've done a lot in like uh, Idaho this year and you know, the potatoes, right? Idaho yep. potatoes, that's what it's known for. But I mean, they're doing all sorts of great work out there and same thing. You're not going to, yeah, you guys aren't there to, to put people out of business, right? I mean, we got to have food and, and farms and yep. stuff. It's more, you know, what do we have? How do we protect some of these lands? You know, like you're saying, and, and it's pretty interesting because yeah, Cleveland's up in the Northeast then you go down kind of the highway through the state, Columbus, Cincinnati. So I'm guessing Cincinnati, I'm not sure if you've spent much time there, but what is, how is Cincinnati, that area different from say the Cleveland area from a, from a natural resource perspective? Is it just that, like you said, it's more broader. Uh, it's just what, yeah, I'm not sure if you spent much time down there. I mean, I haven't, but generally I would say it's fairly similar in terms of like what I'm thinking about when I say similar is like the mix of agricultural landscape mixed with urban landscape, mixed with natural landscape. So similar issues down there, probably. They're, they could probably use a land conservancy down there as well. Yep. And there there are a couple down in that area that are doing great work. Just recently met with one of them a couple months ago. So nearly the entire state of Ohio is covered by some type of uh, land trust that's, that's trying to do the good work. Gotcha. Perfect. 
Well, this is perfect. Anything, you know, as we, we talked about a few of these, I know there were some things I, I saw out there like the carbon credits. I think, um, you know, we mentioned the thriving communities a little bit on that. But any other, uh, you know, things you want to highlight events or any big uh, things you're going to be working on in the next year or so? Yeah. No, Dave, I would just say, you know, get familiar, become aware uh, of your local conservation opportunities, see what, you know, a group might have that could interest you. You know, we do a lot of different things from hunting and fishing events to bird and butterfly hikes to, you know, Grand River cleanups to uh, planting trees in the city of Cleveland to, you know, 500 acre properties that we're trying to acquire and um, kind of everything in between. Uh, we try to provide as many opportunities to really just get people connected to our mission, but also really just to be, to help make kind of Northeast Ohio a better place generally for everyone. And so check out our website, check out some of the projects we have going on. You know, one of our staff will call if you're interested in a project or a property and, um, you know, just have a conversation with them. Perfect. Well, let's take it out here, a quick little rapid fire round and we'll, uh, and we'll jump out of here if that sounds good to you. Great. Uh, so yeah, I always love to, uh, you know, I'm obviously podcasting, fly fishing, uh, podcast is my thing. Um, I'm always interested here. Do you have, I know you've been on at least one other podcast, but do you listen to more podcasts or, or more music or do you listen to any podcasts? Uh, I do big fan of the meat eater stuff. Oh yeah. And big fan of the trivia as well, even though I'm not very good, but, uh, that's pretty much it. What was the one? What was the second one you mentioned? Uh, Mediator Trivia. Oh, Trivia. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So what, now I'm not even familiar with that. So they have, is this a new podcast that's just, or is this part of the Meat Eater uh, network? Yeah, it's part of their platform. They have a trivia every week. Um, one a week comes out and it's just, it's, it's fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. So Meat Eater is definitely awesome. Steve Ranella has put together. Yeah, he's definitely uh, leading out there on a lot of that stuff. That's great. And, uh, and then what about, you know, as far as, uh, we've talked about some big, a lot of money, but who is, is there one group sponsor or funder that's been really, you know, you want to highlight here that we haven't talked about? Um, or big, I'm just thinking big as far as I, and I was looking at one, I mean, I saw something on there. It was like Dominion Energy, I think, right. They had, I think there was a check you had on there that they were given some, I think they've donated like $300,000, I believe, but are, yeah. there, are there a lot more of those big you know, sponsors or funders, or is it more a lot of the little ones that make up what you guys do? I mean, it's all that, Dave. So, you know, in addition to Dominion, I mean, I would just, all of our funders, it literally takes all of them to, for us to try to do this amazing work and have this impact in our community. And, um, you know, we have a, a very strong philanthropic base and we're super grateful to, to everybody that is able to support us. Yeah. What is your tip for somebody that's listening now that's kind of in the conservation, maybe does similar work, you know, and, and wants a tip on how they could find some more funding? What do you tell that person? Um, you know, are you in the funding? Is that part of your, I'm trying to think of your your position. I don't have it in front of me, but is that a lot of your stuff? Or are you actually out on the is. ground? Yeah, it is. So my role is chief conservation officer. So I oversee all of our conservation programming. Um, which includes public funding, public policy, GIS, IT, conservation project management, stewardship, land management, carbon credits, and kind of the gamut of our conservation work. I mean, I would say, you know, just do a lot of research in your state or your community. I mean, I would start state and federal are the two places to look for conservation funding. There is a lot of federal op opportunities right now. You know, that doesn't mean every opportunity is going to fit the project. And that's part of the game that we kind of play when we identify an opportunity. We try to figure out what's the best fit and then reach out to the administrators or the, uh, the, the folks that run those programs and just and get to know them, have a conversation with them. It always helps when you have a relationship with the folks that, you know, you're asking for $5 million for a project. Right. You better know them a little bit. You can't be a, like, who is this guy on the other end? I don't, I've never heard of this guy before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, get to know people and just know your projects. Be passionate about it. Be creative and uh, don't give up. These things take time. You know, we've worked on land conservation projects that for 25 years to finally get it done. Like they don't happen overnight. They're very difficult. And, um, you know, um, but at the end of the day, like I said in the beginning, it, it's some of the most rewarding work, I think, that anybody that's into conservation and, and uh, being outside can do. Yeah, it is. That is perfect. And what would be one tool, you know, on your daily? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure, like, how much you're behind the computer, but is there something like, you know, you couldn't live without, like, as far as a that could be a computer or whatever, just some tool that you utilize? Um, I would say it's relationships. Hmm. Like my computer cut on fire today. Yeah. 
you'd be okay. If you lost your computer and everything, you'd be okay. Yeah, but like the relationships that we create over the years of being out in the communities and working on the ground, it really, I think, is the foundation for our work. And we just have an amazing staff that is able to to build great relationships. And, you know, just like I said about the, the, the funders, if you don't know your funders, it's not a good thing. If you don't know your landowners, you don't know your community, you're behind the eight ball. And our staff has just been able to create great relationships with folks that, you know, a lot of this work comes down to trust. And um, I think that's why we've been so successful to preserve over 70,000 acres in relatively short period of time in uh, Northeast Ohio. I mean, it, it's when we even think about it as staff, it's like, wow, that's a, yeah. that's a land there's a lot of land seventy thousand acres yeah it's hard to even it's hard to even picture what that right i mean because i can think i can imagine what five acres looks like or even the lower but when you get to seventy thousand, it's almost like what is a billion dollars you know or 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 a trillion it's hard to even you know how do you put that in perspective what seven when somebody's listening they don't even know what's seventy thousand. how do you put that into perspective for them um we have some stats on our website that put that in perspective. <laughs> I can't pull it off the top of my head. Right. I wonder how big, I'll have to look at that on the website. We'll put a link out there too, um, like we mentioned. But yeah, I mean, how many acres is your region, right? Or even Ohio, right? I don't even know, right? It's probably some massive number, but still 70,000 is a crazy number. Yeah, it's a very large area. You know, we have some analogies for here in Cleveland, but folks um, nationally wouldn't find that very helpful. So, um, Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think we'll leave it that. We'll leave uh, folks uh, listening. Yeah, let's hear it. A football field is generally an acre. Oh yeah, there you go. Thousand football fields. That's I love that. There you go. One acre is one football field. So now we get a feel. Okay, so that's perfect and uh, good. All right. Well, I guess since you said football, I, I can't leave without a sports. Are you? Do you do? Are you into any sports at all, or have you ever been into sports? Yeah, I grew up playing pretty much all the sports. What was your, what was your, if you were going to go pro and not, you know, conservation, but in sports, what sport would it have been? Oh, man. Um, or, or what were you, I guess you could say, what were you best at or what would you want to be? But, you know, I, I'd say that the sport, because I'm just a, you know, short little skinny guy. Um, so I love basketball, I love football too, but I would just get punished. I played tennis and that would have been the sport that I would have had a chance at just because of my size. Oh, tennis. Yeah. Tennis. Right. Are, are, do you keep up with any sports? Are you, do you keep up with tennis now or any other sports? Uh, not as much as I'd like to play a little basketball, um, play a little tennis here and there, but you know, I'm, uh, when I have a chance to either play a sport like that or go for a hike or go fishing, um, the latter always wins. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. The sports is interesting because I was definitely my whole life, right. Basketball, baseball was it, but then you get to a point eventually where you're you have a hard time letting it go because, you yep. know, it's still a good thing, but eventually, you know, you slowly, you know, at least I did, I slowly let it go. And I still play with the kids, you know, out there and all that stuff in the yard. But I mean, it's sure. just, yeah, I'm not running full court anymore, mainly because partly I don't, I don't want to get injured or I did. I already got <laughs> injured enough, right? Exactly. Exactly. Good. Okay. All right, Alex, we'll send everybody out to uh, wrlandconservancy.org if they have questions. And, uh, you know, it's pretty awesome to hear what you guys have going. I'm going to have a new perspective when I go into fly into Ohio this year, because I'm going to be thinking about you guys and what you have going. And, uh, and yeah, just appreciate you, you know, from everybody, you know, for all the hard work and excited to uh, keep in touch with you. Yeah, no, Dave, I, I appreciate the opportunity the organization does as well. I would say when you're in Cleveland, uh, you have my contact info. Give me a shout. I might be able to get you on some some spots that uh, are pretty neat and that uh, uh, would be fun. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, I th- think I might even, you know, like I mentioned, Jeff Liske is our guide out there. And yeah, I'm sure if he does, I know he knows about you, but maybe yep. uh, it'd be good to connect him to you as well. Just, uh, you know what I mean? Get He talks to a lot of people, but that'd be an awesome connection as well. So yeah, thanks, Alex. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dave. Take care. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. 
All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.